So uh, this morning is part two of a sermon series that we are calling Critical Conversations. And uh, to kind of get us started uh, this morning, I want to, I just brought something along with me. Now, um, my wife and I had this uh, made up quite a long time ago. And um, this is a will, this is an estate plan. And I imagine that a number of you as well have wills and estate plans, maybe that you've had drafted over the years, maybe you've had them revised as well over the years. But um, in this will, in this estate plan, um, there are these different provisions. And in here, there is a provision that if the two, my wife or I, if we, if we pass away, what it is that is supposed to happen to our children. And there are also some directions here about what to do with some of the possessions that we have. So uh, some things that uh, have been collectibles that have been, especially things that have been passed down over the generations um, that have been passed down through our family. And then as well, there's a, a section here about what to do with any finances that we might have. And, and so these things are just kind of all written down so that people will know what to do if I uh, leave this world or when I leave this world. Because the reality is that uh, none of us is going to live forever, right? Well, uh, that, that's kind of the sense of what it is that we're experiencing and talking about as we go through this series, Critical Conversations. The, the Jesus is about to leave this world. He is about to be arrested. He is about to be crucified, to die, to be resurrected. And then he is going to ascend into heaven with his father. And, and so he has gathered his disciples together for this one last time where he is going to have this series of conversations. And he kind of hones in on some critical things that, that he really wants to make sure that they know, particularly as he is about to leave this world. And that's kind of what this sermon series is all about. It's critical conversations. The conversation begins in the upper room. Jesus and his disciples are leaving a, are having this meal. They're, they're up in this upper room. They're going to leave this room. They are going to continue to have these conversations as they travel together out to a garden that is outside of the city walls of Jerusalem. There, Jesus is going to be eventually arrested. Now, I want you to know who it is that is there with Jesus in this upper room. And so, uh, we're going to be in John chapter 13 this morning. But before we get there, I just want to kind of back up for a moment. I want to back up three years from the upper room. And so, Jesus is just beginning his teaching ministry where people are following him and people are listening to what it is that he has to say. And the Bible says that he goes out on this hillside. He goes out on this mountainside. And there are all of these people who are there who are listening to him. And he begins to start picking some of them out. He starts choosing some people in order to be a part of his inner circle. People who will follow him. I want to just read to you a short account here. This is from Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. And it says this. And he, Jesus went up on a mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So, here's the plan. 
Jesus is going to pick these 12 disciples who are going to follow him around, who are going to learn from him, who are going to understand what it is that he is teaching. And after an amount of time, he is then going to send them out. And they will then teach, and they will uh, continue this mission of Jesus. Verses 16 through 19, Mark chapter 3, again, we, we read about the people whom he picked. And so here's what it says. He appointed the, the, the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boenerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Today, our study is going to uh, revolve around this betrayer, Judas. Now, there's something that you need to know before we get into what it is that we're talking about here today. You know, Jesus, he knows who the betrayer is. You and I, we read this and we know who the betrayer is. But the rest of the disciples, they have no idea what's about to go down. Jesus has gathered this group of disciples around him. The plan is for him to send them out. Jesus begins teaching and training them. And as time goes by, Jesus begins to become really popular. And these large crowds are listening to him. They are following him around. They are doing what it is that he tells them to do. But not everyone is in love with what Jesus is teaching. There are some Jewish leaders who are in these positions of power and authority. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests. They really do not like what it is that Jesus is doing. They want people to listen to them. They want people to follow them. And they are becoming quite jealous of Jesus. Not only are, is there this jealousy there, but then they hear Jesus talking about how he's God. And they say, you know what, that's blasphemy. You are not God. Don't claim to be God. You're not. And as time goes by, they're getting angrier and angrier. As time goes by, they're getting more and more jealous. And they want to kill Jesus. Well, I want you to hear just a little bit of their heart on this. Uh, this is from Luke chapter 22. Verse 1 says this. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. So this was like the national celebration for the Jewish people, um, where they would meet together there in Jerusalem, and they would remember the, the miracle that God did in bringing them out of their slavery in Egypt. The Passover was like this big meal at the end of this week-long celebration. Verse 2, it says this, the chief priests... And the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. So these leaders are looking for a reason. They are looking for a way to arrest Jesus. But they are afraid that if they arrest Jesus when this crowd is around, that they're gonna, there's this big riot that's going to break out. And Jesus is so popular, he's so well-liked that they cannot touch him in broad daylight and not have people around him. And so they get this thought, and they think, well, why don't we go get him at nighttime? 
But the problem is that they can't find him at nighttime. The problem is they don't know where he's at. And so they need some help. They, they need an insider who will conspire with them against Jesus. And I think that they start to work on the twelve. I think that they start trying to find someone who is going to cave and who is going to turn on Jesus. And guess what they find? Well, if you keep reading in Luke chapter 22, verse 4, talking about Judas, it says that he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. And so I want you to just kind of picture Judas here. And he's sneaking around. Every time that he is with Jesus and he is with the twelve, he is looking for the right moment. He's looking for the right opportunity where he can turn Jesus over to the authorities. Passover meal is here. This is this big celebration at the end of the week. The last supper that Jesus is going to have with his disciples. Again, in Luke chapter 22, verse 7, we read this. Then came the day of unleavened bread in which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. This is the big dinner. It says, so Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where is your guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. So Jesus tells Peter and John, he says, hey, go and make preparations for this Passover meal. And they say, well, where at? Where, where, where do you want us to go? And, and Jesus responds by saying, well, go into town. Uh, you're going to see this guy who's carrying some water. Follow him wherever he goes. Eventually, he's going to go into a house. When he goes into that house, you follow him into that house. You're going to meet the owner of this house. When you find the owner, you ask him where the teacher's meal is supposed to be had. He's going to show you a room. He's going to lead you to a, a place in his house, and you will find everything that you need right there. Now, does that seem like a little bit of an odd way, a strange way to give out an address of where you should go? <laughs> I mean, someone says, uh, where should we go and have this meal at? And wouldn't it be easy for Jesus to just say, hey, Go to 1960 West 94th Street. Go there. Or maybe he could just say, uh, go to this person's house. Like, go to the Palmer house. We're going to have the dinner there. Why this cryptic message? Why these cryptic directions here? I think that Judas is standing right there. I think that Judas is listening in. I think that he is looking for an opportunity, and Jesus is buying some time here. Jesus does not want Judas to know quite where they're going to be yet. He is making time to have these critical conversations with his disciples. And so is that, with that as the backdrop, I want to invite you. We're going to be in John chapter 13 this morning. 
And so I want to invite you to grab your Bible, grab one in the pew rack in front of you. You can open that Bible app, but I want to uh, just have you turn with me to John chapter 13. Dinner time has arrived. All of the disciples, including Judas, are now there. And Jesus begins the critical conversation with his disciples by washing their feet. As we looked at last week, he tells them, I I, I want to clean not only your dirty feet, but I am about to go to the cross and I am going to clean your dirty heart. And all of you are clean. Well, not quite all of you. And then he says, if you serve other people in the way that I served you, you will be blessed. Well, not all of you will be blessed. We pick up this conversation in John chapter 13 and verse 18, and Jesus says this there. He says, I am not speaking of all of you. Not all of you in this room are going to be clean. Not all of you in this room are going to be blessed. He says, I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So, Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament uh, here. He's quoting from a passage that's been written by King David. And we want to just look at this and and think about this for just a moment here. David is one of the first kings of Israel. He writes this song in Psalm 41. And this verse is right there in the middle of that song. Now, Now David in this moment, just the circumstances surrounding David at this moment is he is sick. David is very, very sick in this moment. It does not look like he's going to get better. There are these other people who are around him. And those people, as they see what David is experiencing right here, they say, you know what? Now's our chance. The king's going to die, and now we can become the leaders. And I want you to just listen to what David writes. This is Psalm 41, uh, beginning in verse 7. He says this. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. These people are saying, you know what? Now's our chance. Now the king is going to die and we're going to get to step into these positions of power. He continues on in verse 9 and he says, even my close friend, In whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Jesus quotes this passage of scripture and he says, Just as David experienced this betrayal of a very close friend, so I'm going to be betrayed as well. This has been predicted. This has been prophesied in the Old Testament. And now Jesus is giving his disciples a heads up about what is soon going to take place. Jesus continues talking in verse 19 of uh, John chapter 13, and he says this, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Jesus says, you know what, it's been predicted that, that a betrayal is going to happen, And when it does happen, I just want you to know this uh, so that you might believe that I'm the Messiah. I I want your belief to be deepened. I want your trust to be deepened when you see this betrayal happening. Why is this part of this critical conversation? 
You know, if you've ever experienced a painful betrayal before in your life, and if you've lived long enough, you have, or you will, but in that moment, deepening your faith is not the only option. You know, it's easy to let uh, situations not deepen our faith, but to kind of deaden our faith. You think about the boy who grew up in a home and he hits his teenage years and his dad betrays the family. You know, this teenage boy experiences this and he could just let this kind of deaden his faith. And he can say, well, you know what? I, 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 trust, I can't trust my earthly dad and I probably can't trust my heavenly dad either. And faith begins to deaden in him. Or the guy who's on the board of a not-for-profit, there he's on this board with a bunch of other Christians. And this guy makes a suggestion of, he gives an idea of a direction that the organization should go in. Now the guy on the board uh, does not really like the idea and he starts going after the idea. And it begins to escalate and now he's not just going after the idea, but now he's going after the guy who has suggested this. And he gets him kicked off of the board. And the guy says, okay, you know what, if this is how Christians are going to act, then I don't know if I really want to have anything to do with Christianity. And it begins to deaden his faith. You know, I brought with me a plant today to kind of help us picture this a little bit. I want you to see this plant. This plant is a representation of the faith that is inside of us. The, the, the faith that is growing and is green. An event happens in your life and you have a decision to make. And in that moment, you can grab something like this, plant food. And you can take this plant food that feeds and helps to grow your faith. You can take it and you can put it on as fertilizer on the plant. You, you can take that and help it grow. You can choose to help your faith grow in that moment. But that's not the only option. You can, in that moment, take something else. You could take the weed killer, the grass killer, and you could take that and you could pour that on the plant and you could begin to kill and deaden the plant. Jesus says, I'm just giving you a heads up here that this betrayal is going to happen to me and I want you to know this before it happens so that you will believe so that you will choose to deepen your faith and not deaden your faith, that you would uh, seek to uh, deepen your trust. Some of you have experienced some tremendous hurt, some tremendous pain, some tremendous betrayal in your past. And maybe you have chosen to pick up the weed killer, which begins to deaden your faith, begins to deaden your trust in God. And today, I think that Jesus wants you to know that's not the only option to choose. Difficult hurt, betrayal can actually deepen your faith. It can actually deepen your trust. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I, I'm telling you this now so that when this happens, your faith might actually deepen, that your faith might grow, that your trust might uh, deepen in me. I know that a lot of times when we experience betrayal and our world is turned upside down, we can lose something that is really important to us. And all of a sudden, that, uh, uh, the direction of our lives and maybe even the direction of our plans can be totally changed. And, and we can say, you know what? Great. 
Now what am I going to do? I mean, sure, maybe this is an opportunity to deepen my faith, to deepen my, plan, or my, my trust. But now my plans are completely changed. Now my plans are completely up in the air. What am I going to do now? Jesus speaks to this as well in this critical conversation. And this is what he says in verse 20. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. What is Jesus saying here? I mean, he's having this conversation about betrayal, and now he starts talking about accepting me and accepting the person that I send. What's he talking about? Do you remember the plan? When the plan, when he first called his disciples together, what was the plan? Well, the plan was to teach them right. The plan was to trust, to train them. The plan was to send them out in order to do the same things that he had done. It seems as if Jesus is saying, well, guess what, guys? The plan is still on. The fact that someone is about to betray me does not change the fact that the plan is still the plan that was on from the very beginning. You can be certain that the sending plan is still on. Is it possible when we experience someone stabbing us in the back that someone uh, may ruin our plans Is it possible that even though our plans might be ruined in that moment, it has not altered the plans that Jesus has for our lives? That the plan that Jesus has for your life, the story that he is working out in your life, the mission that he has for you is still on. That he has not abandoned you, he has not left you, the plan is still on. Now, I know that maybe you're sitting here today and you're saying, okay... Maybe the plan's still on. Maybe my faith can still be deepened. But how am I supposed to respond to this? I mean, am I supposed to just be kind of stoic? Am I just supposed to kind of suck it up? Act as if life is just perfect when something like this happens? I want you to see what happens, what is said here in verse 21. It says this, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, One of you will betray me. How is Jesus feeling in this moment? Says that his spirit is troubled, right? That he's disturbed on the inside. The word troubled here is a word that's often used of water. And the picture that's being painted here, the picture that kind of comes to our minds in this moment is one of water kind of swirling and being stirred up and being tossed back and forth. That there is this trouble, and uh, that's what's happening on the inside of Jesus in this moment. Jesus' soul is is, um, agitated. It is swirling because he knows what is about to happen as the betrayer is going to put his plan into action. Now, in some ways, I find this relieving because we see this human side of Jesus, and it's like he gives us permission to feel this way. I mean, there are times in the scriptures where we see it over and over and over again that Jesus is proved that he is God. That he goes around and he heals people of diseases that no one else can heal. He he talks to a fig tree and that tree withers. He talks to the wind and the waves and what happens? They calm down immediately. Jesus does these miracles and it just shows his absolute divinity that he is God. 
And then we read passages like this where we see him absolutely troubled in spirit. And we see this humanness of Jesus. That he experienced all of these things just like we experience. And as I read this, I think that Jesus gives us permission that when we are betrayed and when we are hurt in our lives, that it's okay to feel troubled on the inside. It's okay to feel troubled on the inside. And yet at the same time, to be trusting. It is okay to be distressed. And yet to have this confidence in what it is that Jesus is doing in our lives. A person can be absolutely disturbed on the inside and yet be totally devoted to Jesus Christ. And I think that that is the picture that we see here of Jesus. Did you catch what Jesus said at the last part of verse 21? He said, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One of the 12 here in this room are gonna, is going to betray me. I think that this is a complete surprise to almost all of them. I think that when Jesus is beginning to hint about a betrayer, they have no idea that it's going to come from the inside, that it's going to be one of their group who's going to be the betrayer. I think that they thought, you know what? Maybe this is going to be one of the people that Jesus healed a while back, and they're going to turn on him. Or I think that maybe they thought, you know, there's these women who are following Jesus around. Maybe somebody like Mary Magdalene is going to betray Jesus, is going to turn on him. But I don't think that they had any clue that it was going to be one of their very own, one of the 12 on the inside of their group. I think this comes as a huge surprise when Jesus says, you know what, one of you is going to betray me. And I imagine that in that moment, there becomes just a, a quietness, an eerie quietness uh, from these guys in this room, in this moment, as they start looking around at each other and they start thinking to themselves, you know what? I know it's not me. I mean, maybe it's Matthew. I, I know it's not me. Maybe, maybe it's Thaddeus. I mean, would not, wouldn't you be wondering who it was in that group? Beginning in verse 22, we read this. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Now, this was a nickname that John uh, had. John was known as the disciple that Jesus loved. It says, John was reclining at table at Jesus' side. Verse 24, so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus whom he was speaking. Now, Think about this. I mean, this has got to be kind of fascinating. All of the disciples, they're sitting there, they're looking around at each other. Peter kind of locks eyes with John. And he says, hey, hey, John, 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 ask him. Ask him who it is. It says in verse uh, 25 that Peter, I mean, he must have convinced John to say something to Jesus here because we read this. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Who is the betrayer? Verse 26. Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped it, dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of uh, the son of Simon Iscariot. You know, I find this table arrangement to be kind of interesting. And I think that we, have, we, we can see some things about where some of the people were sitting based on some of the clues that John gives us here. 
Well, we have a picture here this morning that we're going to put up on the screen so that you can kind of visualize this. But this is the technical term of this is it's called a triclinium. Now, a triclinium is how they would have the formal dinners in Jesus' day. These would have been, when they attended these meals, they would have uh, sat at these tables and they would have leaned on their sides. Probably, uh, most people are right-handed, they probably would have been leaning on their left-hand side as they would have sat in these U-shaped tables. And you would have these U-shaped tables in order to allow the servers to come around into the middle of the table and, and be able to serve everyone who is there. Now, this is not a picture of Jesus' disciples here, but this picture kind of gives us an idea of what the arrangement of the Last Supper would have looked like. And as we read our text here, John gives us a little bit of an idea where some of the people were sitting at the table that night. Did he catch it? Peter is motioning to John, and in verse 25 it says, So that disciple, talking about John, leaning back, said to him, Lord, who is it? So John is sitting right next to Jesus. I mean, they're both reclining there. They're both probably laying on their left-hand side at the table. If John leans back to talk to Jesus, that means that most likely he is sitting on Jesus' right-hand side. Jesus is sitting in the middle of this U-shaped table. John is sitting on his right side. <coughs> Excuse me. John leans back. He talks to Jesus and he says, Lord, who is it? Verse 26, Jesus says, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. He's the betrayer. And then Jesus dips this bread and he hands it to Judas. Now, I think that Judas is sitting right next to Jesus as well. That he is sitting on Jesus' left-hand side. Because usually, uh, otherwise, if, if Judas was not sitting right next to Jesus, Jesus would have had to get up and start walking around the room. And the only person that he could have handed it to while he sat there would have been somebody who was sitting right next to him, sitting right beside him. We know that John is sitting on Jesus' right. And so that's why John leans back to Jesus and uh, Jesus, uh, probably the person who is sitting on his left, is, is this guy Judas. Judas is sitting on his left. Another way of thinking about this would be that Judas has Jesus' back. That Judas is sitting in this place of honor in the triclinium. The, the person who would be seated on your backside, that would have been the person who is most trusted in the whole entire group. Now... I don't think that Jesus assigned the seats that night when they arrived to the meal. I, I just think that they kind of, all of them kind of understood the pecking order here. They, they all knew where people were kind of supposed to be sitting. Everybody knew that, that Jesus would be sitting at the head seat. They, they all knew that the person who would be sitting on his right, the person who would be sitting in front of him, would be the person who was closest to him in the group. The person whom he loved. That would have been where John would have been sitting. The other seat that nobody would have taken, the other seat that would have been left open, was the seat that um, would have been to Jesus' back on his left-hand side. That would have been for the person who was the most trusted in the entire group. And that is where Judas is seated. Verse 27, something incredibly unusual happens. Jesus grabs the bread, he hands it to Judas... 
Here's what we read. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, to be quite honest here, uh, when it says that Satan entered into Judas, I'm not quite sure what happened in that moment. I, it could be that literally Judas became possessed by Satan himself. Or maybe it means that Satan, what Satan desires, the death of Jesus, is now exactly what Judas desires as well. And this is tremendously sad. This is a frightening commentary that is given here by John. Jesus tells Judas to do what he is going to do quickly, to get on with it. Verse 28, we read, Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. The other disciples are kind of confused as to why Jesus would say to Judas uh, what he did uh, to go and do this quickly. And so in verse 29, uh, they're trying to figure this out, figure out what this means. It says, so some thought that because Judas had the money bags, uh, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So. Judas. Judas is the one who is in charge of the money bags in the group. And so Jesus says, I want you to go, uh, get on with it, whatever you're going to do, do it quickly. The other disciples are sitting there, they hear this, and they think that maybe what Jesus is saying is, hey, go buy some groceries, we need some more bread, we need some more dip. Jesus tells him, hey, go, go get that bread, go get that dip, make sure that you do it and do it quickly. Or... It's during the Passover, it was a common thing. It was traditional for uh, pilgrims to make their way to the temple. And they would take some money along with them and they would give that money to the poor. <clears throat> Maybe they had forgotten to do that. Maybe Jesus was sending Judas in order to take care of that for them. Go, go quickly, give this money to the poor. Do you find it strange that Judas is the one who is in charge of the money bags? I mean, maybe Judas is the best person in the group at handling money, right? But what about Matthew? I mean, Matthew, he was a tax collector. Matthew was this guy who was in charge of collecting money for an entire region. I mean, he was in charge of not just any funds, but he was in charge of federal funds. He was in charge of significant amounts of money. Honestly, I think that Matthew had the most experience. Honestly, I, I think that Matthew probably would have been the most competent person in the entire group to handle the money. So why is it that Judas is given the money bags? Probably it was not because of how competent he was, but it was probably because he was the most trusted person in the entire group. What I find fascinating is how Jesus handles all of this. If I knew that Jesus or that Judas was going to betray me, we walk into this room for this last supper that night. Judas is sitting there and he wants to sit down next to me. And I would imagine saying, um, you know what, Judas, not tonight. Why don't, why don't you have Thaddeus come over here? Thaddeus, why don't you sit beside me? Or when they're trying to decide who's going to be in charge of the money bags, I mean, in that moment, Judas's name comes up, and I, I, I would have said, hey, you know what, why not Matthew? I mean, he seems to be really good with money. Uh, Matthew's handled large amounts of money before. Um, why don't we let him handle the money for our group? 
Jesus knows what Judas is about to do, and yet he has no ill will. Jesus knows this, and yet he has no animosity towards Judas. And I cannot help but to think to myself, what is going on in this moment with this? You know, to kind of help us answer this, uh, I want you to think about someone who has sinned against you. You know, um, this morning what I did is I brought along with me a, a stick here to kind of illustrate this. All right, and, and uh, technically I think this is called a dow rod, but I want you to just think about maybe a period of time in your life. A at some point in your life, someone has committed an offense against you. Someone has sinned against you. There's this red rope here on this stick that I've tied on here to kind of represent the offense that has been committed against you. Now, usually a period of time uh, has to pass before we are able to come to the point where we can forgive the person for what they have done. And so this chip clip here is representing uh, the time when we're able to forgive the person. Now, depending on what it is that the offense is, and depending on maybe your life experience, it may take a little bit of time in order to forgive that person. In fact, some offenses can be so deep, some offenses can be so painful that it can take maybe even years to experience real forgiveness in life. Our, our illustration here today, just I want to give you maybe something a little less severe to think about here. But I want us to just maybe think about your sister-in-law. You, you get invited to a Thanksgiving dinner and your sister-in-law is there. And she makes this comment, she makes comments all the time, but she makes this comment about the behavior of your kids. And, and um, she, she says, you know what, you have not given enough time and, and are not making enough effort to discipline your kids in the right way. She says this, and this comment just kind of hits you, and it bothers you. But after a period of time has passed, you start cooling down a bit, and kindness enters into your heart towards your sister-in-law, and you are able to forgive her. Now let's say that, that that process takes three months to get to that. Another family event happens. Another family meal happens. This time, everybody is over at your house. It's a Sunday dinner and your sister-in-law is there. And guess what she does? Well, she makes a comment again. This time, it's not about your kids, but it's about how you keep your house. And this comment hits you, and the emotion of that begins to bubble up inside of you. And as time goes by, you're able to come to a place of forgiveness. Now, instead of it taking three months, now it's only taken three weeks. You're making progress. I mean, you're improving. There is growth that is happening. This is a good thing in this area of your life. Instead of it taking three months, it's only taken three weeks to forgive her this time. What if this happens again? And again, your sister-in-law makes another comment, and this time, it only takes three days to forgive her, to come to a place of, uh, of saying, you know what, I'm not going to hold this against you. I'm not going, your, your heart is softened towards her. And there is spiritual growth that has taken place. It, what if... Instead of three days, it only takes three hours or maybe three minutes. I mean, that would be amazing, right? What if you had the ability to actually forgive your sister-in-law before the offense even happened? 
I mean, Easter dinner is coming just a few weeks from now. Your sister-in-law is going to be there. I mean, you know how she is. You know what she's going to do. You know what she's going to say. What if you could actually forgive her before she even makes the comment? To, to be able to say, you know what? Who I am is not dependent upon what she thinks about me. Who I am is dependent upon what God thinks about me. And I am not going to let her comments ruin my day. I am not going to let her comments fester inside of me and cause bitterness and anger to well up. No, I'm going to forgive her because I know that it's coming. I think that that's what Jesus is doing here. I mean, the reason why he has no ill will towards Judas when he's sitting there in this seat of honor is because, uh, and the reason why Judas is allowed to have the money bags and, and Jesus is not upset with him about carrying around the money bags is because Jesus knows that this is coming. He has already forgiven Judas. There is no anger festering inside of Jesus because he already has forgiven Judas before the offense has even taken place. You know, I think that this kind of gives us a little bit of a clue as to why this is such a crucial, critical conversation. I think that we get a, a clue of why Jesus is spending so much time talking about the betrayer here by what we read in verse 30. John chapter 13 and verse 30, we read this. It says, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Literally, John is saying that Judas is eating this bread. He has aligned his will with Satan and he walks out into the night. It is 8.30, 9.30, 10 o'clock at night. The sun has gone down. It is dark outside. It is nighttime. And I think not only is this literally dark outside, but I think that in a sense, the time of darkness is coming. That um, the betrayal is going to happen. That Jesus will be arrested. He will be beaten. He will die on a cross. The time of darkness has come. This is a critical conversation because we live in a dark world. We are surrounded by dark people. But just because we live in darkness does not mean that the darkness has to live inside of us. And just because we live around dark people does not mean that we have to become dark people ourselves. There is hope because in the midst of this dark world, our faith can actually grow. There is hope because in the midst of the darkness, the plans of God are continuing to go forward. There is hope because even though dark people do dark things, we don't have to respond in dark ways. That just because we live in the darkness doesn't mean that the darkness has to live inside of us. And so we are called to be a people of faith. We are called to be a people who trust in the plans of God. And this is why this is such a critical conversation for us today. As we look at Jesus and him talking to his disciples and talking to us. Let's pray.